Good morning to you, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. As settlers and colonists began to expand their influence into the Ohio River Valley in America in the late 18th century, they met great resistance from Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. American settlers had won many battles against Chief Tecumseh, which not only increased their land holdings, but even greater so, their victories increased Native American hostility and opposition. And so we might ask, how did the Native Americans, and specifically Shawnee Chief Tecumseh, respond? On this day, July 2nd, 1809, Chief Tecumseh began a concerted campaign to persuade the tribes of the Old Northwest and Deep South to unite and resist, according to History.com. Tecumseh was able to rally seven nations to join his Indian Confederacy, which had a united objective, defeat the white man, but not a united flag, banner, standard, or pennant under which they fought. They had a shared motivation, but not a shared identity as a group of people. They were together, but they were extremely still independent tribes. Tecumseh's independent Indian Confederacy proved successful for three years until the War of 1812, when the Native American tribes in Tecumseh's Confederacy decided to fight alongside the British. Effectively, from the perspective of the American settlers, the Native Americans and the British were united under the same banner and fought under the same British flag. We all know the result. The American settlers, fighting under the 15-star, 1795 version of Old Glory, defeated the British and Tecumseh's Indian Confederacy in February of 1815. In fact, it was during the Battle of Fort McHenry in Baltimore in 1814, a year before the victory was secured, that Francis Scott Key caught sight of the ensign, of the flag, of our nation's standard the standard that had caused the American settlers to unite, even as British bombs were bursting in the air. And based on sight of our flag, Francis Scott Key wrote a poem, The Star-Spangled Banner, which became our nation's national anthem. Friends, our forefathers fought and won the War of Independence and the War of 1812 under a flag on a pole. This flag on a pole brought great unity to our nation. And ultimately, the very freedoms that we have come to so richly enjoy. Brothers and sisters, have you considered the power of a people united under a common symbol, even a symbol stuck on a pole? Baseball fans wave their team's pennants proudly. Everyone is familiar with the blue over yellow flag of the Ukraine, which has been flown all around the world in support of this nation under attack from Russia for over a year now. Who could forget that Roman Emperor Constantine led his army into, into battle and victory at the Milvian Bridge under the symbol of two overlapping Greek letters, Chi and Rho, on October 28th, A.D. 213. Chi and Rho are the first two Greek letters in the name Christ, which Constantine declared that he saw in the sky and was told by Jesus in a dream to conquer by this sign, an X and a P overlapping each other. And so he held up this symbol in obedience to Jesus to unite his army. Consider also that all of last month, radical sexual revolutionaries demanded America unite and accept 
their LGBTQIA rainbow pride flag. It's, it's drawn on a major intersection in downtown Spokane. It's hung from public buildings. And the call on our lives as Americans is bow down. Bow down and worship at this banner, at this standard, at this flag. And the majority of Americans, from politics to entertainment to business to medicine to education, caved to the social pressure of the sexual deviants and became compliant worshipers of all manner of sexual debauchery underneath this rainbow pride flag, the ideas of which would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. How interesting, how interesting, friends, the power of a symbol stuck on a pole, the unity of a sign attached to a stick. It's July 4th weekend. I expect that you will raise the stars and stripes to a place of prominence wherever you're gathered, and so you should. Flying our flag is a great way to create community, broadcast values and patriotism, and stand united with our fellow countrymen. Not only is the American flag a good-looking flag in general, it is a flag packed with significance, sacrifice, and historical purpose and meaning. And where the American flag may be better looking than the symbol made of wood hanging on the wall behind me, it does not have the same unifying effect as the cross of Jesus Christ, nor does it carry the same amount of significance, sacrifice, or historical purpose and meaning. By all means, love the flag of your country, but never forget your ultimate allegiance is to the God-man nailed to a cross of wood. The cross is the symbol of our greatest hope, joy, humility, and unity. You are in John 3, where Jesus shares the significance of His cross, His banner, His standard, with a man named Nicodemus. The year is A.D. 30. Jesus just attended His first ministry Passover, where zeal for His Father's house consumed Him. He entered the temple, which was made for the worship of God, and He found in the temple commerce, economic activity, a marketplace for making money. So he made a scourge of cords, and he ran out those men who were selling oxen and sheep along with their animals, and then overturned the tables of the money changers. And later that day, and throughout the course of the week, Jesus was found performing many signs and many miracles, and many people were believing in him. However, John 2, 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What was in man was phony faith, pretend belief. You see, they liked what he was doing, the signs and the miracles. Who wouldn't? But they had little desire to know Jesus is God in the flesh. They didn't want to hear the call on their lives was to repent and to worship Jesus alone, not on their terms, on His terms. The people believed that they were, believed what they were taught to believe by their scribes and their Pharisees, especially this man named Nicodemus, who is at this time the premier salvation authority in all of Jerusalem. His problem, however, is that he knows nothing 
about the salvation that he teaches because this man, Nicodemus, is not saved. Because he is not saved, he is no friend of Jesus in this encounter. To the contrary, Nicodemus and his elite Jewish religious friends need to protect their investment in their money-making scheme at the temple and their grotesque works-based salvation that they perpetuate and promote onto the people, which keeps the people enslaved under their evil spiritual care. So Nicodemus comes at night, not with curiosity, but with conflict, not with humility, but with hostility. As you will see, he happily pays Jesus a token compliment which is a Jewish conversational formality. Jesus, however, knows the heart of this man, and he sees right through this charade, this fraud. He sees who this total fraud is, and he makes this conversation instead about rebuke, re-education, and even, as we will see today, redemption. On this night, Jesus shares three terms of salvation with Nicodemus, which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. Jesus clarifies for Nicodemus three conditions of salvation which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth. And as I walk through the outline points for us, you'll see them in your bulletin today as well. Jesus does this by sharing the first of three terms of salvation in verses 1 through 3, the born-again formality. The first of three terms of salvation is the born-again formality in verses 1 through 3, when Jesus effectively says to Nicodemus, sorry, Nicodemus, your good works cannot get you into the kingdom of God. You will not save yourself. You cannot make yourself born again. You must be anothen, born from above, born again, born of God. And this results in maximum frustration and confusion on Nicodemus' part, which requires Jesus to respond second with the second of three terms of salvation. You see in your notes there, the born-again fraternity in verses 4 through 9, where Jesus tells Nicodemus openly, look, I'm creating a secret society of my own believers right out in public in your face. These are my people who will love me because I will change their hearts from the inside out. You see, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and I have come to give life to men through the Spirit. Now, Jesus' God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic understanding of kingdom entrance is more than Nicodemus' sinful, unregenerate mind can handle and comprehend. And so Nicodemus asks then, how can these things be? How can these things be? In John 3, 9, which brings us to the third of three terms of salvation in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the third of three terms of salvation is after the born-again formality and the born-again fraternity, Jesus explains the born-again finality in verses 10 through 15. You see, in verse 10, Jesus' question is a stinging rebuke for the best teacher in all of Israel. And in verse 12, Jesus' second question rebukes Nicodemus and the whole nation for their failure to believe that Jesus is God. With finality, Jesus declares Nicodemus and Israel are dead spiritually, which is a terrible mystery because these are, friends, the very chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. And if any on earth should believe in Jesus, it's these people. But we found out in John's prologue in John chapter 1, these are the ones that just won't believe. They can't believe. They won't believe. They don't believe. Well, at the same time, they believe that they do believe. 
They've lied to themselves and they believe their own lie. They've been lied to by their authorities. They believe and embrace the lies of the authorities and the lies in their own mind. And the result of this for these children of God, these people of Israel, will be, as odd as it seems, that the children of God will be cast into hell forever. So sad, so sad. It's, it's disgusting, really, what Nicodemus and his friends have been doing. Jesus is repulsed by the pride in Nicodemus' heart. He's so wicked, he had no problem pretending to be a salvation expert in Jerusalem when he knew absolutely nothing about biblical salvation. Even worse, he taught God's people synergism. He taught them salvation would happen by their performance. And he, Nicodemus, made himself the arbiter and the decider the final authority of the works that these people must perform for their salvation. He heaped onto them burdens that their shoulders were never intended to bear and told them that this is what would bring them salvation. Not only was he wrong, they were wrong for listening to him. Jesus has every right to say to this man, how dare you misrepresent yourself to my people? How dare you, Nicodemus? Presume to profit from your misuse of divinely established authority over Jerusalem. How dare you lead the people of God astray into a man-centered idolatry? How dare you enjoy the title teacher of Israel when you yourself are spiritually blind and filled with pride? The text of John 3, 10 through 15 is where Jesus brings this conversation to a conclusion with the born-again finality. We see in verses 10 through 15, finality in Jesus' words. We see finality in the fact that Jesus fires off two affirmations of His sovereignty, which demand reverence for His eternal deity and squeeze the life out of human pride. Jesus crushes and squeezes the life out of human pride by sovereignly affirming the first of two affirmations of his sovereignty, sovereignly affirming, number one, Nicodemus failed authority in verses 10 through 12. Jesus has the authority to tell the spiritual leader in Israel, you are a failed authority, sir, and he does so in verses 10 through 12. The second of two affirmations of Jesus' sovereignty is when we see Jesus' deity is on display, when He sovereignly affirms the second of two affirmations of sovereignty, when Jesus sovereignly affirms His own forever authority. Jesus affirms Jesus' forever authority, His forever authority in verses 13 through 15. Jesus takes this conversation to the depths of despair and rebuke in order to create the greatest contrast possible for what happens next. And what happens next, friends, can only be described as all grace. That's what we see at the end of this conversation, all grace. Jesus owes nothing to this man, Nicodemus, or the Jews, and yet in His infinite patience, long-suffering, grace and mercy, after rebuke, Jesus shares His deity and redemption one more time for this entirely undeserving man. And let's read the text together, and as we do, I need you to consider the hostility of this conversation, which is the fruit of Nicodemus' unbelief. Jesus must rebuke this premier salvation authority with His own premier salvation analogy, you must be born again, 
as a powerful declaration that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not in the hands of men. And yet, after rebuke, we see Jesus graciously sharing the gospel, offering redemption to this man. John reports in John chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Edward Klink says that verse 15 concludes the final statement by Jesus. He says, although the majority of translations imply that Jesus is speaking to the end of verse 21, the expression and tone change, and, apparent, and the apparent change to the past tense strongly suggests that the narrator, John the Apostle, takes over the conversation in verse 16, according to Edward Klink. Klink says, the strange irony with which Jesus ends his dialogue with Nicodemus needs to be explained by the narrator regarding its meaning and significance. The apostle John needs to step in and offer an explanation beginning in verse 16. And what this means is that the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is not a quote from Jesus, but a recap of the gospel according to Jesus given by the Apostle John. And I sure hope you can see this, but this point is not essential or critical to me. What is critical to understand is that the restatement and summary presented in John 3:16 and following does not present a different salvation from the salvation Jesus discussed with Nicodemus at night during Passover in AD 30. There is continuity immediately in the text between the salvation Jesus is presenting to Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15 and the salvation recap given by John in 3.16 and the verses that follow. For many Christians in our world, this is the text that allows them to choose to be saved. I'm going to back up in my notes and tell you this. What is critical to understand is that the restatement of the summary 
in John 3.16 doesn't present a different salvation from the salvation Jesus discussed with Nicodemus at night in AD 30 at Passover. For many Christians in our world, however, this John 3.16 is the text that allows them to choose to be saved, to choose to be part of the fraternal kingdom, to choose to enter heaven, to choose to accept Jesus on their own terms. When salvation is itself explained by Jesus in this text that it is not the choice of men. It is a rebirth that happens by the Spirit of God. John 3.16 does not speak of choice. It speaks of the salvation of all those who believe. What do we know about believing from the context? Well, we know that spiritual belief comes by way of second spiritual birth. You must be, friend, born again, born from above, born by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't allow your friends and your neighbors and your family to hold to the same failed understanding of salvation that Nicodemus had. Don't allow them to believe that you can come to saving faith on your own terms. How many of your family, friends, and neighbors believe in a faulty, cherry-picked understanding of salvation from John 3.16, which is entirely disconnected from the context of John 3, 1 through 15? If you love your family and your neighbors, don't allow them to disconnect these texts. Don't ask them, don't ask them when they accepted Jesus into their heart. Don't ask them that question. Ask your family and friends this question. Have you been born again? Have you been born from above? Have you been born again spiritually by God? An act of God, not of yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, In your name did we not prophesy, and in your names cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And Jesus says, I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And from Jesus' words, we understand many will believe in a synergistic salvation that won't save. Many pretenders exist in our faith called Christianity. Many believe in a pretend salvation, a failed salvation that is the result of men working together with God. But Jesus has made it clear time and time again, salvation is monergistic. It is entirely a work of God alone. James Boyce says, quote, There are many things that separate true Christianity from other religions in this world, but the most important is that Christianity is not a works religion. All the other religions or systems of religion known to us through history or through anthropology have at their base some system of good works by which a follower of the religion earns merit. Christianity insists on the contrary, that we cannot earn anything and that all that could possibly be done has already been done for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about that salvation and you look at that cross behind me, you can understand the power of the salvation that radiates out of that cross. To this we say amen. Salvation is a free gift of God, determined by God in eternity past, and applied to sinners while they live. Jesus took my name to that cross. Friend, did he take your name when he went to that cross? Do you know that? Nicodemus did not know this. But Jesus is going to change all of Nicodemus' understanding of salvation. Today, we're going to focus on John 3, 13 through 15, where Jesus graciously ends his conversation with Nicodemus by presenting the eternal plan of salvation and the redemption of the souls of men one last time 
to this salvation authority failure, Nicodemus. Nicodemus' mind had been fouled up for a long time regarding salvation. It seems Jesus has a special interest in overturning Nicodemus' unbelief. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would overturn the unbelief in the hearts of the unbelieving in this room among us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for guiding them into this sanctuary for worship today. We pray that you glorify yourself in revealing salvation to every undeserving unbeliever among us so that by saving the unbelievers in this room now, you might prove your power to save and the glory of your endless grace toward all those who believe. Friends, in our text today, Jesus seeks to overturn the unbelief of Nicodemus. And I can say that with this text in front of me, as God's representative for you, it is my joy, it is my delight to think that the Lord might use this time to overturn your unbelief as well with the same words. He'll do this by revealing three facts of rebirth required to restore man to God. And I hope that you're paying attention and you take down these three facts of rebirth required to restore men to God. If you came in here today and you're not restored to God, you don't know that you're restored to God, take down these three facts of rebirth required to restore you to God. Jesus in the text unveils three essential concepts of salvation required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Friend, you're going to die someday. You need three essential concepts of salvation required for entrance into the kingdom of God because you don't know when you will die. And I would sure hope that your desire is to keep your life and not lose it and enter into the kingdom of God and heaven forever with Jesus. And so you need three essential concepts of salvation. What three essential concepts of salvation restore man to God and afford you kingdom entrance? The first of three essential concepts of salvation you see in verse 13, it is number one in our notes, Jesus is God. The first of three essential concepts of salvation is for you to come to this recognition from verse 13, Jesus is God. That's number one. Jesus is God. Number two, you must understand Jesus must die. Verse 14, Jesus must die, the second of three essential concepts of salvation. And the third of three concepts of salvation is in verse 15. We see that Jesus gives life. The third of three concepts of salvation, essential for you to understand, Jesus gives life, verse 15. So these are the three essential concepts of salvation. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus must die. Number three, Jesus gives life. Don't miss the, the contrast in this conversation at verse 13. It's truly remarkable, the contrast that happens at verse 13. Jesus' rebuke has come with great finality onto the head and person of Nicodemus because this man is a total failure. Jesus crushes him, shatters him to pieces, his pride, his title, his desires. And then after rebuke, Jesus graces Nicodemus with this predetermined glory plan of God to purchase eternal life for all those who would believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus shares the gospel according to Jesus with Nicodemus to end their argumentative, frustrating, and confusing evangelistic conversation at night. The gospel according to Jesus then begins with number one in your notes, the first of three essential concepts of salvation. Number one, verse 13, Jesus is God. We saw this last week when we studied verse 13 where Jesus says, and no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And by this, Jesus is saying, I'm God. I would tell you, be careful, friends, when people make comprehensive claims for which they have no basis. You hear this often in evangelistic conversations as you share the gospel with somebody. They respond oftentimes, well, no one can know really where we go when we die. Oh, really? How do you know? Have you spoken with all the dead? Have you spoken with all the living? Have you consulted all the deities? You have traveled to the ends of the universe and back, and somehow you have landed with this information? Where did this come from? And so you challenge and you push back on comprehensive claims. But look at what Jesus is doing in the text. He makes a knowledge claim about entrance into heaven that is an all-consuming knowledge claim. How can Jesus make this claim? No one has ascended into heaven. Really, Jesus? How does Jesus know that no one has ascended into heaven? Well, the answer becomes very clear. Jesus is God. He is saying in a polite, slightly indirect way to Nicodemus, Look, Nicodemus, I'm God. I'm from heaven. I've been observing earth ever since I created it. No one has ascended into heaven. I know this as a fact. This is the message of the Apostle John that he wants to get across to his audience. This message that Jesus is God. He has the authority to make the claims. John makes this desire known when he says in John 20, 31, look, I wrote these seven signs. They have been written for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. That's John's purpose statement. Of course, it would be the case that the Apostle John captures Jesus' own testimony that He is God, which is what we have here in the text. If anyone is going to believe in Jesus, this is the first of three essential concepts that must be understood. Jesus shares His deity. He shares His personhood with Nicodemus first before sharing with him, second, his purpose for coming to earth, which we see as we approach John 2.14, which brings us to the second of three essential concepts of salvation in verse 14, Jesus must die. Jesus must die. Why share this glorious good news with Nicodemus? This man is an entire failure. Why? Friends, Jesus shares this incredible truth with Nicodemus because Jesus is full of grace. It should start to make you think, gee, Nicodemus is headed to hell for his own choices. It seems like Jesus wants to save Nicodemus, like he's going out of his way to save Nicodemus. You think so? Friend, that's just the point. Jesus is always going out of his way intentionally to save those whom the Father has given him from eternity past. Nicodemus won't save himself. He is happy in his unbelief, in his created salvation. 
But by the grace of Jesus, personally sharing three essential concepts of salvation, Jesus seems determined to save this failed spiritual authority. To do so, Jesus explains next that Jesus must die when he says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, this same way must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus' reference to Moses validates the whole of the Old Testament. I would tell you, friend, don't ever allow anyone with their pretend Christianity to tell you that they are New Testament Christians only. You see, that is a failed man-centered piece of understanding. Jesus loves the Old Testament, and so do we. And so I would encourage you to stop listening to failed spiritual authorities like the guy named Andy Stanley, who has thousands of people that listen to him regularly, and he has entirely denied all of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, we, we see very clearly Jesus uses the verb lifted up twice in this text to present a New Testament parallel to an Old Testament event. It's really more than a parallel that Jesus is presenting here. Steve Lawson says, throughout the Bible, there are many types that foreshadow a future reality. The bronze serpent is a type of Jesus or a symbol in the Old Testament that represented him. Other types of Jesus in the Old Testament would include the slaughtered lamb that provided clothing for Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah's ark, the Passover lamb, and even Moses himself was a type of Jesus, a deliverer of God's people. What's extremely awkward and uncomfortable about this parallel with Moses, bronze serpent, is that both were lifted up. And you might ask, what makes lifted up awkward? Lifted up is the Greek verb hupso, which is another dual meaning word. Jesus seems very fond of dual meaning words in this conversation with Nicodemus, like the word anothen, which means again, which also means from above, as well as the word pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit. Hoopso can mean either to lift up and elevate, or it can also mean to exalt. By extension, it can mean to exalt. The context here in John 3.14 clearly lets us know this is not exaltation. This is elevation. Turn in your Bibles to John 12.32. John 12.32. Interestingly, hoopso, this Greek verb, is used only five times in the Gospel of John and only 20 times in the whole of the New Testament. All uses of hoopso outside of the Gospel of John are translated exalt. That's important. Every use outside of the Gospel of John, the translation of hoopso is exalt, exaltation. Take, for instance, Luke 14, 11, when Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself, hoopso, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, hoopso. James says in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will hoopso you. He will exalt you. Fifteen times in six books of the New Testament, hoopso is translated exalt. And yet in the Gospel of John, all five instances of hoopso speak of Jesus 
crucifixion. At the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, in John 8, after announcing to the crowd that He is the light of the world, Jesus said prophetically to the hostile Pharisees in John 8, 28, when you lift up, hoopso, the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing from myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And where you are, in John 12, 32, Jesus says to a crowd of people, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, like a flag on a pole. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. Now look what John has for us here. I, I told you earlier at John 3.16 that John gets involved with commentary on what was said previously to give clarification. And look in this passage, you have the same thing, friends. In verse 33, John is giving us clarification. Not only does he record Jesus' words, again, clearly speaking about his crucifixion, moreover, John chooses to plainly tell us what Jesus meant. But you have to remember that the Apostle John's commentaries here in 1233 come when this man, John the Apostle, is now nearly 80 years old as he is writing at the end of the first century. His commentary comes over 50 years after this was spoken. If we really want to understand Jesus' verb, hoopso, his being lifted up, we need to hear from his audience at the time that he spoke and ask of the audience, how did you, Jesus' audience, understand what Jesus meant when he said hoopso, when he said lift it up? Well, look at that. And not only does John record his own commentary about what Jesus says, he actually records for us the audience's words in verse 34 when we read, the crowd then answered Jesus at that time, having heard what he said, and they said, we have heard from the law, that is the writings of Moses, that the Christ is to remain forever. And how do you say then, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This crowd understood exactly what Jesus was speaking about in regard to crucifixion and death because they saw the contrast in their Old Testament law speaking about a Christ who would remain forever and the contrast of remain forever and lifted up which means crucifixion. This caused their hearts great frustration, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt. John records the result of their anxiety, fear, worry, and doubt in verse 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. Turn back in your Bibles to John 3, 14. This verb, hoopso, as John records Jesus' use of it, was very troublesome because of its dual meaning. And yet, it is extremely clear in the Gospel of John, Jesus is discussing His death by crucifixion. R.C. Sproul says, There is little doubt in the minds of the commentators that when Jesus spoke of being lifted up like the bronze serpent, He was referring primarily not to His exaltation, but to His crucifixion. Leon Morris says, to the outward eye of the flesh, to the outward eye, he says, that is the eye of the flesh, this was the uttermost in degradation. The death of a criminal is the one who is lifted up, crucified. Morris goes on to say, to the eye of faith, it was and is the supreme glory of God to look on the crucifixion, to look on the cross. 
Jesus' death on the cross is supreme glory, but only for those who have been made to believe. And that is the whole point, friends. How difficult is it for spiritually dead men to understand the glory of this mystery? Jesus is God. Jesus must die. What? Excuse me? How can God die? It's a paradox. It's a mystery. It's a horrible riddle. Men don't like it. Men routinely, always reject this message, which is exactly what God wanted to happen. Do you get that? It's exactly what God wanted to happen. Because the only ones who will believe ever in this foolish gospel must be the ones who are born again. Which means that all the glory for any belief in Jesus and this foolish cross, all the glory will never go to foolish men. Will always go to the God who did the salvation. Because God must give eyes to see and He must give ears to hear and He must give faith for any one of us to believe in this foolish, seemingly contradictory gospel. There is no other way to reconcile God and man but through the crucifixion of God himself on the cross. Jesus knows well the demand on his life, that he be crucified. He says in John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that is me, even so must I be lifted up. You see, must here in the Greek is the verb deo, which means to bind, to tie, or to imprison. The text literally reads, in this manner, lifted up, he is bound, the Son of Man. The verbs are working together to stress the certainty of Jesus' death by crucifixion. There is no other way. Jesus must be raised high overhead on a stick so that all men will look and see him and marvel at the enigma of his life, so powerful and a mysterious death that seems so helpless, and yet it is the very means by which the wrath of God against sin was entirely satisfied. This picture of Jesus' death is prefigured in the Old Testament in Numbers 21. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers 21. John MacArthur says the term must emphasizes that Christ's death was a necessary part of God's plan of salvation. And so I ask you, friends, why must Jesus be crucified, lifted up on the cross at Calvary? Paul summarizes the answer extremely well in Romans 3, saying, Romans 3.10 specifically, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Romans 3.23 has this summary for us as well. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But brothers and sisters, the glory of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is captured well by Paul in this thought from 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says, God made Jesus who never knew sin to become sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is double imputation. Jesus takes upon Himself all of the stain of our wretched, wicked sin. And He's on the cross, and His Father looks down from heaven, and He's bearing all of our sin. And you know what He looks like? He looks like a wretched serpent in the garden who led Adam and Eve into sin. And the Father punishes Him, punishes the serpent on the stick, the one bearing all the sin, the sin bearer, punishes Him. And the double imputation on the backside is this, where you gave and ushered off your sins onto Christ because He took them, He wanted them, now He ushers off to you and slides off to you His own robes of glory. This is double imputation. He's the only one that can do it. God has known us from eternity past. The ones who would be saved, He has known from all of eternity He knew when we would be born into this world, and He knew that in our birth into this world that we would be filled with sin. He knew that He would have to send His Son to die in our place on the cross so that when He applied His salvation to us, we would look to that old rugged cross and know with great certainty that this was the plan of God for our salvation from before the foundation of the world. What is happening here, friends, in Numbers 21 verse 4? What is happening in Numbers 21 verse 4 where you are now? Israel has begun their journey to the promised land. They are being sustained by Yahweh in the wilderness from manna for food to water from a rock to military victories against nations that are in their way. Yahweh is their best provider, protector, and defender, which he proves to them when he supernaturally brought them out of slavery in Egypt. But these people are just like us. They want more. They are grumblers and complainers against God in addition to being frustrated and impatient, which we read in Numbers 21.4 where Moses says, Then they set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks to it will live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, on a pole, on a staff. And it happened. That if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Isn't it interesting? The people asked for the Lord Yahweh to remove the serpents from among them. And he didn't take the serpents away. The biting vipers, he didn't take them away. They continued to bite the people. But he made a plan of salvation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said in John 3.14 that this story of God's punishment and salvation of Israel in the wilderness was and has a direct parallel to His crucifixion. Do you see the parallel? Do you see the gospel here in Numbers 21? You need to. You must see this. Yahweh created a most awkward rescue in the Old Testament punishment of His chosen people. 
How absurd is this rescue? To take the very object of distress, a snake, and exalt it over the people for them to look at the snake? You'd think that if Yahweh wanted to rescue the Israelites from his wrath, that he would just cause the snakes to stop biting people and then give them to the people for food. Because these people probably would like to have snake and quail together with their manna. You'd think that if Yahweh is going to make Israelite participation in salvation by looking and beholding necessary for salvation, that he would make the image of salvation something appeal for them to, appealing for them to look at. But not a snake on a stick, not the object of punishment and wrath. Don't make us look at that. And yet our God has great reasoning and intentionality in both His ends and His means. He is very methodical about His timing, His imagery, His methods, and His commands. I think about this wicked serpent in the Garden of Eden and how this wicked serpent in the Garden of Eden, and then we have Numbers 21, and then we have Christ's crucifixion. And the evil that was perpetuated in the Garden by a serpent, a snake, is ultimately figured and factored into the cross at Calvary. We see this next. Yahweh's wicked and sinful people cry out as they receive the just punishment for their impatience and anger toward God. And remarkably, Yahweh chooses to listen to them. He's not obligated to by any stretch listen to them, but he does. Moreover, he authors a path of salvation that is hurtful to human pride because all you need to do is believe and obey to be saved. Think about these two words, believe and obey. Israel and all of humanity for all of time are total failures at these two tasks as a result of the fall of Adam and Eden, Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. You see, friends, the way, this, the way that life works for every human being that's ever been born into this world or created Adam and Eve into this world is this. God speaks. God has spoken. You are a creature. You are required to listen and obey the Creator. That's it. But men don't want to obey God. We have a glory complex that God gave to us. We want glory for ourselves. Men don't want salvation on God's terms, monergistically, which requires belief and obedience to God. Men want salvation based on merit. They want salvation that can be earned with wisdom and with good works, not belief and obedience, because that would make men dependent on God. And one thing we know about our glory complex is that we want total independence from God. Donald Barnhouse says, the brewing of potions and the making of salves would have given the Israelites all something to do with their hands and would have satisfied every natural instinct of the heart to work on behalf of its own cure. But Barnhouse says, in Numbers 21, there was nothing of that kind mentioned. Salvation came by a snake on a stick, but only to those who listened, believed, and obeyed by looking. James Boyce says, It goes almost without saying that in itself the remedy proposed by God and enacted faithfully by Moses was absurd. How crazy. Look at a serpent on a stick. How can it be that a bronze serpent on a stick can cure me of anything? How can it be that by listening to the plan of God and looking to the serpent-topped stick, physical death can be staved off? How? Only by the grace of God. And friends, that's salvation. It's all of grace, not of works. 
Inevitably, someone would argue, Pastor Oliver, the Israelites did work for their salvation. They had to look to receive the salvation from death, which proves that God and man must work together for salvation. Friend, is that your thought? Oh, I wish that you would slow down your thinking and just back the bus up two steps. Can't you see, friend? Looking is participation after salvation has happened, not initiation of salvation. I'm begging you to please understand the difference between initiation and participation. Initiation of salvation comes from the mind of God in eternity past. Participation after salvation is the result of being born again spiritually, which is to say you only look to the serpent on the stick if God caused your heart to do so. As the Jews would say, God would have had to cause your heart to shema. Shema, O Israel, to shema, to hear, listen, and obey. One Jewish word, three meanings. Shema means hear, listen, and obey. This is what is expected of our God, of His people made in His image and likeness. And so too, for the last 2,000 years, you only look to Jesus as Lord and Savior if you've been born again, born from above by God, and given a new heart that causes you to hear, listen, and obey His words. The only ones who will receive eternal life when they die have a love for Jesus and a faith to believe in Him that was created and sustained in them by the Spirit of God who lives in them. Men cannot make the Holy Spirit live inside of them. Do you realize that's what some people believe? They believe that they can make the Holy Spirit live inside of them. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? The Holy Spirit chooses to indwell those whom the Father has elected for salvation from eternity past are the same people that Jesus took their names to the cross. It's the same group of people. Father, Son, Spirit, eternity past, the cross, salvation today for one of y'all. It's all together. It's cohesive. Turn back in your Bibles to John 3, 15. Brothers and sisters, what happened first? Looking? In, John, in Numbers 21, what happened first? Looking or listening, believing, and obeying? Is Yahweh's salvation in Numbers 21 given by God? Or is Yahweh's salvation in Numbers 21 given by men? What would you say? Is salvation entirely one-sided, friends, or is it two-sided? When has God not lovingly provided a path for men to be saved? He's always provided. You see, the Bible paints the picture over and over of men enslaved to sin, radically changed by God's purpose-filled salvation of them, even while men are haters and enemies of His. The Apostle Paul. Donald Barnhouse says, There is nothing but death awaiting the Israelites as a result of their wound, unless God Himself shall furnish a remedy. A remedy is what God provided, even monergistic salvation, a one-sided, God-given, grace-driven, even Calvinistic salvation that healed only the obedient. Steve Lawson says, This looking to the bronze serpent is an illustration of saving faith. Those who were saved believed God, which begs, we ask, how do unbelieving men believe? What makes enemies want to obey? Where does the faith come from to believe God? How can men born spiritually dead hear and obey the living God? Brothers and sisters, as we consider Numbers 21 and John 3, has God done something unrighteous by providing salvation for men that only happens by His grace on His terms? Has God done something wrong in making this the only way to save men? Who in their right mind can find fault with God for first punishing Israel in Numbers 21, and then saving Israel in 
Uh, second, in Numbers 21. And then third, hiding, embedding, and concealing the ultimate picture of spiritual salvation, which is Christ crucified, the symbol of God's greatest glory, into the physical salvation provided by a bronze serpent on a staff. You see, the, the, the hiding and concealing that God did in Numbers 21 was genius. It's marvelous. Only our God could come up with this idea and imagery that is so profound. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 2.17, listen, he says this, the Old Testament contained things which are only a shadow, a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Old Testament shadow, Jesus Christ substance. You're in John 3.15 where Jesus is sharing the substance of his life and ministry on earth with a man who did not understand the shadow of eternal salvation pictured in Numbers 21. Having shared that he would be crucified and lifted up on a stick, just like Moses' serpent in the wilderness, Jesus shares the purpose for his coming, soon coming death, saying in John 3.15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the purpose. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And with these last words to Nicodemus from Jesus, we arrive at the third of three essential concepts of salvation. Verse 15, Jesus gives life. You must understand, friends, Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus' forever authority is known in this. He has the ability to give life eternally into the forever. Into the forever. The subject of Jesus' love is quite literally those who are the ones believing. All those who believe. This is the subject of Jesus' love, which is presented here in the text. It's very awkward that Many translations use the word whosoever or whoever. This, this word speaks of a possibility, and it leaves open the idea that all men in the world could reject Jesus. And we know that that's just not true because Jesus came, he, he created to save. He came to earth and died to save. And so whosoever leaves too much option for men to duck out of a salvation that Jesus is overwhelmingly going to place onto them. A better translation is, what you see in several Bibles, everyone who believes, but really I would stick with all the believing ones. Jesus' love is beset on the ones believing. This is the subject of Jesus' love. The sphere of Jesus' love is in Him. Those who are believing in Him, the sphere of Jesus' love is in Him. He is the ultimate source of life. He is the object of our love because He first loved us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's no other deity in the world who did this. I would tell you that third, after we see in this text, the subject of Jesus' love is those who are believing, and the sphere of Jesus' love is in him. Third, we see the sharing of Jesus' love is eternal. The sharing of Jesus' love is eternal. It is eternal in nature. It is eternal life. We see a subject. We see a sphere. We see the sharing of Jesus' love is eternal life. Jesus begins sharing his love with us at the moment of our salvation and will never stop loving us. Steve Lawson says eternal life, he says of eternal life, this, heaven life, this heaven-like life begins in the present. The present tense has eternal life stressed that this divinely given life begins the moment we believe in Jesus. The relationship will never be annulled. It, can, it will continue forever throughout all the ages to come. In reality, says Lawson, eternal life is the life of God himself residing in the previously empty and dead soul of you and I. 
How great is this? Knowing that while you live, that life will get better and better even after you die. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, you and I, you will come again. I will come again to receive you to myself, and there where I am, you will be also. It's, un- it's, it's really unbelievable that Jesus chose to share three essential concepts of salvation with a man he so potently rebuked. And yet this is exactly how Jesus ends the conversation with Nicodemus. It's hard to imagine the size of the grace of Jesus who closes this conversation with Nicodemus by sharing the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. How can you make sense of Jesus' presentation of his deity and plan to save men for all of eternity being shared with an evil man like Nicodemus? Why should this man be given the knowledge that eternal life comes to those who simply believe the foolishness of Jesus' crucifixion? This is way more than Nicodemus deserves to know, or you or I, for that matter, to know this information. Why? Why should we get the joy of sharing eternal life in Jesus today? The answer is this. Jesus is not a failed authority, nor is he a frail authority who rises for a moment and disappears from history never to be seen again. Jesus is our forever authority, the maker of heaven and earth. He is our creator God who came to die so that he could give eternal life to all of those whom he had chosen from eternity past to share eternal life with. Think about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a perfect gospel, and yet it is rejected by sinful men every day. And yet sinful men are more than satisfied to believe in frail, corrupt, and failed authorities. Chief Tecumseh didn't promise victory. He didn't even promise abiding unity with the other tribes because they would likely end up warring and killing each other as they had been doing for centuries before. The tribes that joined him, he wasn't going to unite them together with him. And yet Tecumseh got seven tribes and the British to believe in him. Tecumseh, he got them to believe in him, that he was a uniter. And a conqueror. And just a few years later, Tecumseh proved to be a failed authority, just like Nicodemus. Brothers and sisters, failed authority is all around us. Literally, billions of people believe in a host of failed authorities. Why do we in this room believe in a crucified Messiah? What causes us to answer the call of the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus? How is it that difficult times and trials haven't caused our faith to grow weak, but instead to grow stronger in our love? for the crucified Messiah? The answer can only be this. He applied His salvation and eternal life onto us over our objections, over our rebellion. He gave us His righteousness. He caused us to be born again spiritually, just like He did with Nicodemus after this conversation. We have the fullness of spiritual life in Him right now, which makes us love, give, and serve His church. Friend, has Jesus given you eternal life? Are you born again? What do you see in that image on the cross, on the wall behind me in that cross? Do you believe that the gospel, do you believe the gospel according to Jesus that he presented to Nicodemus? That he is God, that he must die, that he gives life? Are you one of those believing in Jesus because he is the only forever authority? This is, friend, the call on your life. Repent for your sins and believe in Jesus for salvation and for eternal life. Father in heaven, I pray that my friends here in this room would lift high the cross, would live under the shadow of the cross, would fall at the foot of the cross every day, 
that they would repent for their sins and turn and believe in Christ alone for salvation. I pray for those who are here and have never believed that you would cause them to have the humility to see their sinfulness, to repent and turn and believe in Christ alone unto salvation. We pray that your words would affect all of our hearts right where we need to be today, to be encouraged, to be confronted, to be rebuked, to be exhorted, and to have this eternal promise of eternal life set before us yet again by a glorious Savior. 